<clears throat> I think it was a couple of months ago. I forget where it was, but all at once, everyone's cell phones around me went off with that emergency signal noise. I think an Amber Alert was triggered, and it just activated the, the same notice on everyone's phones all at the same time. And those are becoming, I think, maybe a little more common. Amber Alerts, as I'm sure you know, are they're now used in all 50 states to alert the public of a kidnapping or an abduction. Pretty much every parent's worst fear, like the original Amber Hagerman, she was just riding her bike with her brother in Texas, 1996, when she was abducted. And thankfully, though, as tragic as kidnapping and abduction cases are, they are thankfully relatively rare that 99.8% of children return home safely, and that only 100 children a year are are actually abducted by a a non-relative. That's more than zero, so it's not a good thing, but in a country of 300 million, those numbers, that's not a huge number. Still, though, because we love our children, and because it's like our greatest fear, well, we create Amber Alerts. We teach our children about stranger danger. We warn them not to accept candy from people they don't know. We watch over them. And when you think about, you know, despite the, the minuscule actual numbers of abductions, I don't think this is an overreaction because it's just the last thing we would want for our children to be taken, trafficked, kidnapped, abducted, whatever. So we go to, to great extent to prevent that. And that, as is often the case, what is true physically is also true spiritually. When it comes to your children in the faith or your brothers and sisters in the church, and would you want to see them get abducted? And I'm not talking physically, but spiritually. And do you want to see some charlatan come along and you know, capture them? Or see them be led astray from the faith, abducted by a false teaching, even led into a cult? And when you think about it, that's, it's kind of like a spiritual kidnapping. Our loved ones are not missing. Their faces aren't going to show up in any milk cartons. But in another sense, they can be taken away from us and taken away from the truth such that they never come back. Though they may have been raised in the faith or had come to the faith, made a profession of faith, the spiritually weak especially can be so deceived that they turn away from Jesus and they they turn hard. And so our answer is no, of course. No, we don't want to see our loved ones be taken captive by corrupt worldviews or false teaching. We don't want to see them wander from the faith, stumble into error. We don't want them to be abducted, led into a cult. And so we should similarly, though, go to great extent to warn them, to watch over them, to prepare them. Because whereas the numbers of physical abductions are like a needle in a haystack, thankfully, the number of spiritual abductions, they kind of feel like hay in a haystack. And I trust and hope this will help you appreciate the sentiment of the Apostle Paul in so many of his letters. He's writing often because he just doesn't want to see his spiritual children or grandchildren get taken by false teaching and false ideologies that threaten to take them away from Christ. And that's very much the case when it comes to the letter of Colossians, and especially now its second chapter. That's where we are today, so you can take your Bibles and open them to Colossians chapter 2. Every week I give you a little bit more background to Colossians as we make our way through, and so Hopefully, you're getting the picture now, but Epaphras, who was the seeming pastor of the Colossian church, he visits Paul in Rome and reports of this strange, eclectic, false teaching that was on the rise back in Colossae. It's one thing for the church to face opponents who outright hate and reject Christ. In another sense, there's a greater danger to those who accept Jesus, but twist and misrepresent him. And that's what was happening in Colossae. Some teachers had latched onto Jesus as a type of mystical figure, but not the supreme Lord of glory. He's not God and King come down to pay for our sins and to save us. He's merely one of many spiritual beings or emanations who can, you know, help us achieve deity ourselves. So Paul is writing to Christians, those who have professed Jesus as Lord. They've been brought into the light. But still, there's so many forces around them trying to drag them back into the darkness, both in thought and deed. And so just a good portion of Colossians is designed to just help them resist, to watch out, to beware, to not buy into these false teachings or ideologies. But Paul has a unique and effective strategy, strategy, though. 
You know, the number of false teachings or corrupt worldviews are legion. There's too many. They're never-ending. You can't hope to refute them all. I mean, you can, but just, they just keep coming. You put down one, two more pop up. So instead of always trying to refute false teaching directly, Paul more often takes a positive approach, meaning he just wants them to know thoroughly Christ, and just know the gospel, be equipped with the truth. Sometimes he'll call out false teaching and directly refute it, but more often his approach is just to help believers know Christ. If you can just know the Savior, know the gospel, know what you believe and know why these things are actually true. If you can be thoroughly convinced that Jesus is Lord and there is no other, and Paul knows believers will be equipped to defend themselves against whatever new error pops up. They will be adequately prepared to identify and refute falsehood on their own. And this is a worthwhile approach, one which we should emulate. And this explains why much of what we find in Colossians, it's really just Paul propping up and teaching on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. He just doesn't want to see his spiritual grandchildren get abducted. And the best way to do that is to ensure that they know Christ well. And that's definitely what we find in this next passage. It's Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Today, we're only going to get through 8 through 10. But in this section overall, it starts with a very quick word of warning. Just one verse. And then a long section just teaching on Christ's sufficiency to save. He's going to tell us who Christ is, what he's done for us, who we are in him. And these are the foundational truths on which we're supposed to build our thinking and our doing. Christian belief and Christian practice are founded on the true knowledge of Christ and his gospel. And Paul knows that knowing Jesus better is, is a, a sure way to be safeguarded from error. And the more we can know Christ, the better. So let's just jump into the first part of this passage. Today, it's really 8 through 10 that we'll get through and see how this section unfolds. Colossians 2, and let's start by reading verses 8 through 10. He says to them next, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you've been made complete. And he is head and overall rule and authority. He goes on from there, but this is what we'll cover today. And in these verses, they're really just marking the beginning of Paul directly addressing the elephant in the room, which is the false teaching that was on the rise. But just the way he does this, I think we can and should derive already a, a simple twofold strategy for resisting error. That's what we aim to find, a simple twofold strategy for resisting error, just in how he goes about guarding the church. So let's pay attention and learn from his instruction here. Twofold strategy. First, you beware the emptiness of philosophy. Beware the emptiness of philosophy. And starting in verse 8, he's beginning to warn them against this eclectic brand of teaching on the rise. It's just one verse of direct warning, and then it's going to be followed by seven verses of just teaching on Christ. And we'll, we'll get there, but let's first and foremost just handle and appreciate this one verse of warning. And so back to verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Now, this warning against philosophy probably does not mean what you think it means. When you think of philosophy, you probably envision a bunch of old guys with white beards, wearing togas, just sitting around debating, you know, the questions of life. But the word philosophy literally just means a love of wisdom, phileo, love, sophia, wisdom. It's just a love of wisdom. Philosophy in general then speaks of the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge to understand life and the meaning of life and values. And so in, an, in its essential form, it's a good thing. All people should love wisdom and should seek out answers and truth and life's meaning. Now that being said, 
Today, we largely think of philosophy as that pursuit of all of life's questions. But from an atheistic perspective, where God's not in the equation. You know, today, we're not even modern. We are postmodern. We're far beyond this construct of thinking that a creator God is responsible for the world and therefore gives it meaning and purpose. And so today we tend to think of philosophy as an alternative to religion. Religion answers all the same questions of life, but from a theistic perspective. And philosophy today is like the opposite. But you need to know that in Paul's day, that wasn't the case. That philosophy, the word, included religion. And today, for example, we wouldn't call Judaism a philosophy. Existentialism, that's a philosophy. Judaism, that's a religion. But not so in Paul's day that Josephus, for example, used this word philosophy to refer to Judaism and its various branches. And so what you need to know is that when Paul says beware philosophy, he's got a much broader definition of philosophy in mind. And so I think the closest word today that captures the concept is just worldview. Any ideology or worldview, theistic or atheistic, that seeks to answer life's questions. And so we're being told to watch out for any school of thought, any worldview, religious or otherwise, that that's not of Christ. As Christians, it's not like we are to disparage rationality and critical thinking and searching for truth. We should have the highest view of those things. But it's just that we know the truth is only found in God and his revelation So we just don't have any need for futile speculation. And that's really all that man's philosophies or systems are. They're empty speculation. Because apart from God's special revelation, i.e. scripture, you can't possibly hope to authoritatively answer all of life's big questions. Who are we? Where do we come from? How do we get here? What's the meaning of life? What happens after life? Man can only speculate. And because his foolish heart is darkened and his eyes are blind, being spiritually dead, he'll never find the truth. It's only when man in humility and faith submits to the creator and his revealed will will he find all those answers, answers which God had to give. And in his mercy, he has given the answers of who are we? How did we get here? What's our purpose? What happens after death? This is why Paul very appropriately responded to a group of philosophers when he was in Athens. He said to them, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, Acts 17, 23. And he just went on to preach the truth of God from scripture. And so what do Christians have to do with the world's philosophies? Not a whole lot. To the degree they happen to accord with God's word, fine. But most often, they're going to be opposed to God's revealed truth, and they're going to come with an agenda, which is to pull Christians away from God's truth. And this is why Paul warns us against them. So verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. And so the actual command is, see to it. It means, watch out, beware, take heed. It's a present active imperative, meaning like you have to Keep watching out. Continually watch out. A long time ago, I went on a hike, and at the trailhead, I saw a very prevalent sign, mountain lion sighting warning for the whole trail. And that sign is not there so that you will look out for mountain lions only at the trailhead. That sign is there so that you keep an eye out for mountain lions on the whole trail. I mean, the danger is ever-present, so your watchfulness must be ever-present. And likewise, you know, the danger of false ideologies capturing believers is pretty constant. And so there must never be a time when Christians are not watching out and they have their guard down. Speaking of capture, this word captive means to lead off as prey, to kidnap, to kidnap and to carry off as plunder. It was used of people carrying spoil from a battle or a raid. And often that spoil was in the form of humans. Slavery was a real consequence of ancient warfare, as was just straight-up kidnapping and human trafficking. In fact, do you remember where Paul was from? From Tarsus? 
It's the main city of the region of Cilicia. It's on the southern coast of Asia Minor. Did you know that Cilicia used to be an ancient stronghold for pirates? There's a time when all the Mediterranean powers were weak. They didn't have big navies. And so pirates flourished in the Mediterranean. And Cilicia was their home turf. And they fed the ancient economy of slaves. They had these small, agile crafts that could duck into little coastal towns and whatnot. And so they would land. They would quickly kidnap people from coastal towns, drag them back on their ship, haul them off to a faraway country, sell them as slaves at 100% profit. The pirate stronghold of Cilicia was crushed, thankfully, by the Romans in the 60s B.C., But I wonder if Paul uses this word and this imagery because it was so close to his home. Either way, though, it's a fitting picture of the danger of false teachers. Spiritually, they aim to kidnap believers and and rob them of the riches they have in Christ. In fact, as Paul goes on here in verse 8, he's really going to give us several reasons we need to watch out or beware these, these philosophies or worldviews. Now, let's look at all these reasons. Really, that's the first one we just covered. Number one, it, it is enslaving. Why beware man's philosophy? Well, number one, it, it is enslaving. <clears throat> the worldviews of the world aim to take captive followers of Christ and lead them away. You know, it's over in Ephesians. Paul gives a very vivid depiction of our life B.C., before Christ. Let me just summarize some of that for you. You can just listen along. This is Ephesians 2.12. He says, Remember, at that time, you were separate from Christ, having no hope and without God in the world. In 4.17, you walked in the futility of your mind. 4.18, you were darkened in understanding, excluded from God because of the ignorance within you and hardness of heart. And then 4.19, he says, Being callous, You were given over to every kind of impurity, immorality, and greed. In short, you used to be completely in the dark. You lived in the darkness. Your mind was darkness. Your eyes were darkness. Your your destiny was outer darkness. It's a bleak picture, and I trust you remember that hopeless existence. But now, by God's grace, you're in the light, and by His mercy, He rescued you from the domain of darkness and transferred you to the kingdom of light. And through Christ's rescue mission on the cross where he came and he died for us and paid for our sins. And bearing the full wrath of God in our place. We can be forgiven. And we can be made new and made alive and spiritually resurrected. Just as Christ rose from the grave. And and as that happens, as we, we come to faith in Christ, we are made new. You're given New eyes to see, new ears to hear, new, new lips to praise, a new destiny ahead of you. And all this being the case, you know, the, the question is here is, why would you return to the darkness? Yeah, you might satisfy a few lusts of the flesh, but it's a bad trade. And so therefore, why would you listen to those who are trying to, to pull you back into the darkness and the way of the darkness? And, and that's Paul's point here. Here and in Ephesians, he says in Ephesians 5, 6 through 8, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And a man is enslaved to sin, and so is his thinking. And you must therefore beware that thinking, those philosophies they have as their agenda to, to just bring you back with them in the darkness. We have no reason to go back, so, so watch out. Secondly, it is empty. The second reason to beware philosophy, let's, let's keep going in verse 8 here, it is empty. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, and empty deception. Now, in English, it might sound like Paul is speaking of two different things. Watch out philosophy. Watch out for empty deception. 
But that's not the case. The, the underlying Greek syntax argues that this empty deception is just further modifying the philosophy against which he's warning. And so like the Net Bible says, don't be taken captive through an empty, deceitful philosophy. He's just further explaining why we need to watch out for philosophy. And so the next reason is because it is empty. This word means hollow, vain, worthless, of no substance. It's like walking to a library filled with all the teachings of a philosophy and it looks so vast, so impressive, all the stacks of books. But then one by one, you, you pull them off, you open them up, and they're all empty. They're just all blank. Every page of every book is blank. And this really is the nature of man's ideologies, that they're devoid of, of truth. There's nothing in them. There's no spiritual value. False teachers claim their teaching leads to fullness, but their truth is ever-changing. Their claims are hollow, and it only leaves people empty. Number three, it is enticing. It is enticing. Now just going off of the word for deception. This speaks of alluring others by way of seduction. That false teaching appeals to the flesh that it might trick people into departing from Christ. You know, sin is inherently deceitful as is our own flesh. And so if you're not skilled at Ephesians 4.22, putting off the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. If you're not good at that, then you might just be seduced by the false claims of these teachings. This verse, everyone needs to know. Hebrews 3.13, it says, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You have to open your, your eyes to the fact that in these ideologies of the world, they're bound to sin, they're trying to deceive you, and that man's ways ultimately are all about serving self. One way or another, they appeal to the flesh, they're in service of self. And so it's no wonder that man's worldviews, whatever they might be, they're about promoting self, serving self, worshiping self magnifying self. The way of Christ, though, is, is the end of self, where we die to self and live to the glory of God. But as our selfish flesh remains, you're going to find some fleshly appeal to the ways of the world and the thinking of the world, and this is why you have to watch out. This is just how man's ways and thinking operates. It's enticing to so beware. This goes right into the next one, number four. It is earthly. Paul carries on in verse eight, describing the philosophy of the world, why we need to watch out for it. And next he gives three parallel statements, each with the same preposition, according to. So don't be taken captive through philosophy. Which kind? Well, that which is according to, verse eight, the tradition of men. According to the tradition of men, scripture, you might say, is a heavenly tradition. This is God's own revelation passed down through his representatives for us to know him and to know all the answers to life's questions. You might call it a sacred tradition, but earthly tradition is that which has changed or replaced or invented its own thinking and replaced God's thinking with man's thinking. As you might recall, this was the problem of the Jews who added so much of their own corrupt earthly thinking to God's law. That they so corrupted it with their own ways that they essentially formed a new like works-based religion. They so twisted God's revelation. And you should know by way of background, it just might be that Paul has in mind a Jewish group who's behind the false teaching uh, in Colossians. Because we know that the heresy he interacts with here had distinctive Jewish elements to it, like circumcision, observing holy days, the Sabbath, and dietary restrictions. In fact, later in chapter 2, it's going to become clear that the false teachers were promoting a measure of Jewish legalism. But you know what? That's so typical. It's so earthly, we might say. 
Because that's just how natural man thinks, isn't it? Man, in all of his self-made religions, is given over to envisioning that God or salvation can be reached. How? Just try hard. Right? Through a system of works. Just do this. Don't do that. Abstain from these foods. You know, observe these special days. Go on a pilgrimage. And that's how you reach God or enlightenment. And man likes to create a system of spirituality that, you know, it's, it's doable. The thing about that is you, you can do that. Salvation there for, for them is it's doable. But God's ways are not like man's ways. And God's ways are not doable. They are impossible. You cannot be good enough. You can't do enough. You can't be holy enough to reach this God. And this is why Christianity alone teaches salvation by grace. That God, by his mercy, mercy, has to do for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. And he does that in Christ alone. He came to pay our debt of sin and grant us perfect righteousness. And this is why you need to be warned against, though, any worldview that, like all the rest, resorts to the same old earthly solutions like you know, goodness, self-effort, works, deeds, these are according to the traditions of men, not God. And again, this leads right into the next reason for watching out. Number five, it is elementary. It is elementary. You see the second according to statement in verse eight? You see that? He says, beware of philosophy, which is according to the traditions of men. And then he says, according to the elementary principles of the world. There's some debate behind this word stoichia, what it means. I'll just say in short, I think the NASB has it right here, that this word is taken to refer to the foundational principles of a subject. And so in a language, that would be the ABCs. In music, that would be the musical notes. We're talking about the, the elementary principles, the rudiments of any subject. And so what he's saying is that man's thinking is it's elementary. It's, it's a regression into childhood. It's like you've come to Christ. Your eyes have been opened to God's truth. You're in the light. It's like now you've got a PhD. So why are you going back to kindergarten? Now, false teaching is so basic. What that means though, you know, what are the elementary principles of all religions? What's the, the basis, the basics of all worldviews and religions? And the ABCs of man's attempts at gaining salvation. Well, it looks like, you know, legalism or asceticism or works or in a word, it's law. It's all about law. Just, just try harder to follow these rules. Do these things. Don't do these things. The elements of all religions. But it's so basic and, and so wrong. And Christianity is the only religion or philosophy or worldview that moves beyond this. That Christianity alone is not founded on law, but on grace. And again, I believe Paul is addressing the Jewish background to these false teachers with its attention to the the, the base element of religion, which is law. He does want to see these Christians fall back under bondage to the law. This is actually confirmed later in the chapter. Just if you want a preview, look down at verse 20 of Colossians 2. This false teaching is strange because there are definitely pagan elements involved, but there's also Jewish elements. So look at verse 20. He says, if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that's the same word, by the way, stoichia. You've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why? As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to such decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. A lot to see when we get there, but for now, note that Paul uses... The same word in that context with a Jewish legalistic and ascetic background. 
uses the same word in the same context over in Galatians 4, same thing. And, and the conclusion to his argument there is, Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. He's talking spiritually. He's talking worldview, what you believe. We're not under law. We're under grace. But man's worldviews are trying to bring all people back under slavery to the law, to, to rules, as if that's how you can please God. Never has been. And they themselves are deceived, seeking to deceive others. They themselves are enslaved, seeking to enslave others. But only in Christ do we come under grace. And you don't want to trade grace for law. Any worldview that seeks to drag you out from under grace and put you back under law is not of God. It's evil. Because in bondage to the law, there's only death. In fact, we can finish with number six. It is evil. It is evil. A last reason he gives as to why you should watch out for man's philosophies. This is the, the third according to statement. Finishing up verse 8. It says, beware philosophies that are, at the very end, not according to Christ. And that Christ and Christ alone are the only way to redemption and reconciliation with God. And his gospel of grace is the only path to eternal life. And so if you're going to buy into another ideology... That's promoting another path. Well, that's just you jumping back on the broad road that leads to destruction. You don't want to do that. In fact, that's the tactic of the evil one. To get people on this broad road. Listen to 2 Corinthians eleven, three and 4. And Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray from the simplicity of, and purity of devotion to Christ. He says, if, if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we've not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you've not received, or a different gospel, which you've not accepted, you bear this beautifully. The Corinthians were, they were spiritually immature and so prone to just, oh, let's follow that person now. But this has always been the basic strategy of the evil one, the devil, to lead people away from Christ. There's only one doctor who can heal them, but he puts on a lab coat and offers people medicine, but deceives people with a false cure, only seals their condemnation. But this is why you absolutely must beware any ideology that, that rejects or detracts from the sufficiency of Christ. That, that's not going to be of God. Anything that does not accord with Christ, his person, his work, his mission, his gospel is not of God. So you put it all together, beware the emptiness of philosophy. It's just so empty. And man's thinking is, is a danger though. And, and those who are spiritually immature are more prone to being taken captive by it. Especially those who've not been built up in the knowledge of Christ. They're extra vulnerable to someone coming along, passing off half-truths, or, you know, catchy philosophies or novel thoughts that appeal to the flesh. They seem to improve upon Christ and his gospel. But you must see to it that you are not captivated by seeing through what they're saying. But this really gets into the second part of this simple strategy to resist falsehood. See, only those who are empty, well, their minds are not filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And the glory of the gospel. They're, they're more liable to being captivated and filled with something else. If your cup is empty, you have a good chance it'll be filled by something else. And so you, we find that the second part of Paul's strategy to help the church resist is just to fill them with Christ. And to help them behold the fullness of Christ. And that really is the bigger part of this strategy. So let, let's think about this now. Number two, behold the fullness of Christ. First, beware the emptiness of philosophy. But second, you got to get to number two, behold the fullness of Christ. 
You know, starting in verse 9, he takes that negative statement from the end of verse 8. He's going to run with it. That man's philosophy, it's, it's not according to Christ. So don't buy into it. But, you know, what is according to Christ? What, what should you follow? Why is it a good thing to be taken captive by Christ? Well, in verses 9 and 10, he gives another little list of reasons. And they're all about highlighting the fullness of Christ. Let's look at these now. Number one. Jesus is deity. Jesus is deity. Verse 9, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. So for deity in verse 9, it's an abstract noun for God. It's derived from theos or theos. And it speaks of a divine nature or the divine being. So Paul is very clearly saying Jesus possesses deity. He shares the divine essence. He's of the same nature as deity. And they're talking about a strong, clear, straightforward statement on the divinity of Jesus. But wait a second. You might know that from the Colossian teachers to later Gnostics, that they believed in a hierarchy of spiritual beings who they all shared in a type of deity. They're not fully God, but they were reflections or emanations of deity. They conceived of deity like a ladder. And Jesus, he's, he's higher up on the ladder. He's much higher than humans on the ladder of deity. But it's not like he's the one true God. But Paul shuts the door on that philosophy. Because Jesus is not just like a little bit deity. Number two, Jesus is the fullness of deity. He's the fullness of deity. Verse 9, for in him, he says, the fullness of deity dwells. We've seen this word for fullness before. Back in chapter 1, verse 19, where he said, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. I was talking about the man Jesus in his incarnation, and, and all the fullness dwelt in him. The fullness of what? Well, what was implicit back in chapter 1 is now made explicit right here. It's the fullness of deity. That Jesus is not just one spiritual being on the ladder of deity. There's only one God. Only one being who possesses the quality of of deity. And Jesus is the fullness of that God. That's what he's saying. The word fullness means fully present. The full presence of deity is found in Christ. Here in verse 9, he also uses the same word for dwell. Back from chapter 1, that Jesus is the dwelling place of God, the special presence of God. God's omnipresent, but in another sense, he's caused his special presence to dwell with and among his people. And that dwelling used to be the temple. That was a mere shadow of of things to come. But in Jesus, we see the, the perfect, complete, and final dwelling place of God with man. It's not in a building, but in a body. And it's not a place, but a person. And this is present tense, which means now Christ, or rather God, the fullness of deity, continually dwells in Christ Jesus. That God's special presence with his people is found in Christ. It's a pretty staggering thought, but there's still more. Because to really eliminate all doubt, as if you might wonder, like, well, could, could still, could, could deity be divided? Number three, Jesus is all the fullness of deity. Number two, Jesus is the fullness of deity. Number three, he is all the fullness of deity. Verse nine, one more time. It says, for in him, all the fullness of deity dwells. Not part, not some, not half, not 99%, but but all of it, all deity, everything that is deity dwells in Jesus. None is left out. He is the full essence of God. And this is just such a clear statement on the full and complete deity of Jesus that you really can't argue otherwise. If you are ever made to define and defend the deity of Jesus in as few words as possible, just come right here. Because Paul said it first, Paul said it best, that in him all the fullness of deity dwells. This is paramount to understanding the the person and work of Christ. But, you know, we're still not done because Paul, 
he goes ahead and throws in also the total and complete humanity of Jesus. Just in one verse. Look at verse 9 again. Uh, uh, Point number four, Jesus is all the fullness of deity in bodily form. He's all the fullness of deity in bodily form. Bodily form is an adverb. It's modifying the verb dwells. So how does the fullness of deity dwell in Jesus? Well, in bodily form. This means substantially or truly, actually, not virtually, not holographically, not symbolically, not metaphorically, not conceptually, not theoretically, not hypothetically, but actually. Truly, the fullness of deity dwells in the person of Jesus in a body. He took on full human flesh. He really had a full human nature with a full human body. And we see in this God's condescension, he knew we needed this. We needed a mediator and a dwelling place. And an earthly temple and a human priest would not do for an eternal kingdom. But God always designed to combine, you might say, temple and priest in one perfect mediator, Christ Jesus. And he is now the one in and through whom we dwell with God. These truths are essential to the gospel. There's no salvation if, if Jesus the Savior was not fully man and fully God at the same time. If he's not fully man, he cannot be our substitute sacrifice. If he's not fully God, he cannot be our total sin bearer. But scripture teaches both. And that this, this short, little, concise verse perfectly captures both essential truths. And these, these form very, the very, are part of the very foundation of the good news that our God has come down to save us, to pay the price for us. And so any teaching or philosophy or worldview that does not accord to this is not of God. It is wrong. And you need to see who Jesus really is and why it matters. You know, behold the fullness of Christ And just to finish, we'll add one last point here, number five. This is from verse 10. Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. Jesus is the head over all rule and authority. You see that from the end of verse 10. You know, we've seen these twin terms before, rule and authority. Again, back in chapter one, Paul used them as technical terms to refer to spiritual forces or powers, a.k.a. demons. And back in chapter 1, verse 16, he made the point that, that all things, including these spiritual forces, were created by, through, and for Jesus. And talk about supremacy. But here, the point he's making is that Christ is also, in case you're wondering, the head over all rule and authority, showing like there's no competition here. There's no struggle that Jesus is the complete and total authority over all spiritual powers. They answer to him, and they will answer to him. Like we read it a little bit in Psalm 2, you know, the nations rage against the Lord and his anointed. And so do the demonic powers behind the nations. Like Psalm 2 says, they want to tear the Lord's fetters apart and break free. You know, that was likewise Satan's desire, was it not? But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them because he's installed his king upon Zion. And that's King Jesus. And Psalm 2 goes on to speak how the whole world is given to this king as his inheritance. And Colossians just makes, us, makes it clear that that includes things on earth and in heaven. That Christ possesses all, he will judge the world in righteousness, things visible and invisible. They're all going to answer to this king. This fact is particularly relevant in Colossians because these false teachers not only denied the supremacy of Jesus, but down in chapter 2, verse 18, we learned they were actually worshiping angels. It's like they're hedging their bets. Do you want salvation or enlightenment? or fullness. And Jesus is nice. Let's bring him in, but you need more. It's not enough. You got to pay homage to these other forces. But no, get the picture straight. We pay homage only to the Son. 
Jesus is not one among many spiritual beings. He's creator, their creation. He's God, they're not. And so do not be deceived. And there's no higher spirituality outside of Christ. And that those who reject him and think otherwise will eventually find out the hard way when he returns to judge things in heaven and on earth. So you put it all together now and, and we have, we have a, a very simple but effective two-part strategy for resisting error. You know, first, negatively, watch out. See to it that no one takes you captive. Beware the emptiness of philosophy. But at the same time, positively, behold the fullness of Christ. See who he is and what he's really done for you and find in him all that you need. Really, the strategy here is that you become so full of Christ and captivated by him that there's just no room left for error to gain a foothold. You're too full of Christ. I actually think Paul drives this point home with this interesting little phrase at the beginning of verse 10. We skipped over, but just just look there now. He says, and in him you have been made complete. And here he's not telling us something about the false teachers or about Christ. He's telling us something about ourselves. That in Christ we've been made complete. It's very significant though because this word for complete, it's just the word for full. Remember it said in Jesus, you know, all the fullness of deity dwelt. It's really just the same word for fullness in verb form. So what he's saying is, look, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells. And now in Jesus, we are made full. It's clearly a play on words. What does it mean? It means we have all we need in Christ. And he's the fullness of deity. How could that not be enough for us to fill us, to provide us what we need from salvation to sanctification to satisfaction? That God in Christ Jesus is all we need. It's just another stress on the sufficiency of Christ. It's one of those already not yet truths of scripture that look, we already are perfect and complete and full in Christ. And when we received him by faith, we received all of him. But at the same time, it's not yet true in our daily experience. We need more. We need minds more set on Christ. We need to be more filled with the knowledge of his will. But rest assured, he is what we need. If you're lacking, it's because you need just to be filled more of Christ, drawn nearer to Christ. And Christ is all we need for growth, for wholeness, for security. It's drawn near to Christ by his word and prayer. You'll be supplied with the full measure of his wisdom, his courage, his strength, all of which we need if we are to please him and to grow and to resist error. I'm telling you, it's such an effective strategy, not just for spiritual growth, but for not being captive by false teaching. Have you ever been so stuffed at a meal you had like no room left. And I mean, I really mean no room left. Like one of those restaurants that gives you like way too much food. But you go for it. You, you, you eat it all and you are stuffed to the gills. You literally feel like you could burst. And the waiter comes around and asks, would you like to see the dessert menu? And the strangest thing happens. You say no. You say no. Because you really are, you're so stuffed and satisfied, you, you don't even want to look at the dessert menu. It almost makes you sick to think of dessert. And what could dessert add? You've got no room, you have no desire, you're, you're full, you're satisfied. Well, in a similar manner, this is the strategy. Just be so full of Christ, of the knowledge of him, love for him, devotion to him, that you're satisfied. There's no room for anything else, no room for error. And the only difference is man's philosophy is more like poison than dessert. But nevertheless, it appeals to our flesh. But when you're full in Christ, you realize there's there's just nothing in the thinking of man that that could add to me. It's not going to add to my salvation or sanctification or satisfaction. It's not going to add to my joy. They cannot make you more full than Christ. In reality, you're only going to see the emptiness and the hollowness 
of man's ways, and no one ever got full off of eating hollow food. So as you see their thinking and their beliefs and their ways and and what they offer, if you're full in Christ, you're going to say, you know what? No, thanks. I'll pass. I'm full. I I don't need that. It offers me nothing. This is a, a simple but powerful lesson. This is the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. This is the Lord's strategy to keep us safe and even to grow us. So let's now put it into practice. Beware the emptiness of philosophy, and yet behold the fullness of Christ. In him we are made full. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord Jesus, we pray that you indeed fill us now. We're grateful that in salvation we we have you. We are united to Christ by faith and given the, the full measure of of our Savior, his work for us, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his standing before the Father. That, that Lord, is now how you see us, as if we are as righteous as Christ. And that, that's part of the glory of the gospel, that in Christ we truly have been made complete. But at the same time, we live in the flesh. We have ways that still rebel against you. We, we need more. We need more of Christ in our minds. We need his gospel controlling our thinking. We need to pursue him for our joy and and just set our eyes on the Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. This will not only fuel our spiritual growth, but as this fills our cup, there's just no room for error to get in. This is your safeguard for us, for your people, that we would not be taken captive. And nothing has changed man's ideologies. They're just more numerous than ever, all the while seeking to drag us away from our only hope, selling us a bill of goods that that sounds appealing sometimes to our flesh, to our doubts. But Lord, just fill us with Christ that we are assured in him that he is all we need, all we ever have is in Christ. So give us more of the Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.